BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, scientists have been saying for years that with climate change, California's Sierra snowpack could vanish. A new study from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab has predicted how soon that could happen. And it's shockingly soon just 25 years for snow that nourishes plants and animals, powers winter recreation, and in normal years provides 30% of California's water supply. The effects of a snowless Sierra Nevada could be catastrophic, but study authors say there's hope. We'll learn more after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Californians had a glimpse of a snowless Sierra Nevada in 2015 when snow surveyors went to take their April measurements, a time when the snowpack is typically at its deepest. They found mostly dry ground. Their gauges measured the snowpack at just 5% of normal, the lowest in decades due to severe drought. A future where that happens often and for years at a time isn't far off, according to a new study from researchers at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, who say it could happen as soon as 25 years from now. Joining me are study co-authors Alan Rhodes and Erica Cyrilla Woodburn. Erica Cyrilla Woodburn is research scientist in energy geosciences at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Welcome, Erica Cyrilla Woodburn. Good morning. Thank you for having us on the show. Thanks for being here. Also, Alan Rhodes is hydroclimate research scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Alan Rhodes, glad to have you on as well. Thanks for having us. Excited. Well, Al Alan, I'll start with you. Just 25 years when little or no snow could become more of the norm. It's a pretty shocking number. How did you arrive at it? Yeah, so admittedly, you know, uh, the levels of Sierra Nevada snow loss are pretty hard to fathom, particularly as a kid who grew up in both Lake Tahoe and Nevada City. But what we found is, you know, our, our study is unique in that it's a literature synthesis. So we've uh, kind of collected all of the best available estimates of future snow loss and compiled them for the different mountain, mountain ranges around the uh, western U.S. We found a consensus across our models pointing to a consistent future of less reliable snowpack. Um, and so the 25-year kind of estimate that has been often getting headlines was more of our proof of concept analysis of 
you know, a definition of low to no snow going into the future. Um, so I think we really want to highlight that, you know, our, our literature synthesis uh, results a little bit more. And in those literature synthesis results, we found roughly a 50% decline in uh, snow water equivalent by uh, 2075 and upwards of around 60 to 70% decline by end century. So, so help me understand what that means. When you say low or no snow, it doesn't sound like you're talking about it completely being gone forever then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so when we were, you know, doing this literature synthesis, uh, we had to kind of comb, you know, dozens of studies. And in those studies, we found that researchers are often using different metrics to assess snow loss. So sometimes they'll use the common rule of thumb of April 1st, which is often thought to be the peak timing of snowpack in the Western US, but that's not really always the case from one mountain range to the other. Other uh, studies literally use peak snow water equivalent or the maximum amount of snowpack water content in the snow in, in a given mountain range, and others use kind of seasonal averages. And so while doing that literature synthesis really came to the terms that maybe we need to get a little bit more strategic and coordinated in terms of defining what we mean by low to no snow. And so we leveraged um, a metric uh, that we believe uses both kind of this idea of estimating peak snowpack loss, so it, irregardless of this April 1st date, combined with um, something that people might be familiar, familiar with, which is the US drought monitor percentile approach. Um, and so we combine these two ideas to come up with basically a low to no snow future is anytime peak snow water equivalent in any given year is less than or equal to 30th percentile of a, say, 50 year historical period. Um, and so when we say low to no snow, we mean that, you know, it's substantially less snowpack, particularly at the maximum amount uh, or timing. Um, and another caveat of our definition is that we not only thought of the magnitude of snow, but also the sequencing of years. So you brought up in the beginning uh, about 2015, this would be considered kind of an extreme low to no snow year. It's one or maybe two years of this back-to-back -back low to no snow. And what we're seeing in the model results is that um, as we head into mid-century and end-century, as the world continues to warm, that we might get into what's called an episodic low to no snow occurrence, which means five years of back-to-back -back low to no snow. And then you know, out to end century, we start to see persistent snow loss or low to no snow, I should say, uh, where it's a 10 year period. I and see. So, yeah. So you're saying mid-century by 2050 or so, we'll see frequently more periods of five straight years with little to no snow. And then later in the century, 10 straight years potentially of little to no snow. My understanding, Erica, Sarah Woodburn, is that part of the reason for doing this study, comparing all of these different literature studies and coming up with this time frame, is because you really wanted to spur conversations about adaptation strategies. So really, that there is action that can be done to try to prevent some of the, the worst effects of this? Yeah, that, that's definitely right. Um, I think there's a few motivations for our study, and that includes sort of sounding an alarm and just bringing more um, awareness really to snowpack loss and sort of the implications. And then, as you mentioned, to, to, to come together collectively as uh, researchers and stakeholders to think about strategies to prevent this low to no snow future 
and or climate adaptation strategies, which sort of help to mitigate these um, sort of negative effects that might be observed given a, a low to no snow future. So part, part of this is really, um, yeah, making sure that people know that this is not some sort of hypothetical make-believe uh, future scenario where, you know, there's like this doom and gloom um, <laughs> impacts from climate. This is actually a phenomena that we're already observing in the Western US. Um, so snow tail gauges, which are, um, you know, these, these snow measurement uh, locations that you mentioned at the beginning of the hour um, have, have been around for decades. And there's been a few studies which look at sort of the evolution of snowpack at these points all across the Western US. And data shows that there's been approximately 20% uh, snow loss at these gauges since the mid 1950s. And um, really part of our study was to sort of put that snow loss that we're already observing into the context of um, you know, future scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, definitely part of, part of our study was trying to think about, um, yeah, sounding the alarm of, of all these kind of observed things as well. And, and how to address them. Alan Rhodes, you looked at the Sierra Nevada, the Cascades and the Rockies. Why is it that the Sierra and, and probably the Cascades too could face a no snow future faster than other mountain ranges? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Um, so it really comes down to several factors. Uh, you know, an obvious one is the elevation uh, at both the maximum and minimum of these ranges. So the Cascades and Sierra Nevada, although the Sierra has one of the highest maximum elevations in the Western US, on average, it's lower than say the Rockies and so is the Cascades. The other is the proximity to the coast. Uh, and so that means that average temperatures are going to be higher. Um, and then also the kind of prevailing storm systems that make landfall and deposit snowpack in both the Sierra and in the Cascades are derived from relatively warm storms. So we often get atmospheric rivers in, in the, particularly in the Sierra Nevada and California that drives around 50% of our annual precipitation. So those storms are derived from the tropics and they're already making landfall at or near freezing. And I, uh, I think on, there's a study that we point to in our study that uh, shows that, you know, 40% of the precipitation that falls in the Sierra Nevada and Cascades is at or near freezing already. And that's only with a one degree increase in temperature, Celsius, degree Celsius increase in temperature since uh, the early 1900s. So you can imagine in a uh, one and a half, two degree, three degree future warming scenario that more and more of that um, potential snowfall begins to transition into rainfall. Um, and as well, that snowpack that even gets deposited can't be maintained for long periods of time because the average freezing level is also moving upslope. You mentioned at the very beginning, Alan, that you grew up in the Sierra, that this is what you know as a child is snowy winters and so on. What was your reaction to seeing this number pop up in your literature study that we could be seeing prolonged periods without snow in the Sierra as early as 2050 or even late 2040s? Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's a little bit hard to fathom admittedly. Um, I've been working at this long enough now though to, you know, working on the um, snowpack loss kind of estimates of the future that, it wasn't totally shocking, um, but I think it was shocking that there were so many studies pointing towards the kind of similar conclusions. Um, 
But I also, you know, want to state that there's still time to <clears throat> mitigate our carbon emissions such that um, these future warming scenarios might not arise. Um, and so my hope is, you know, this kid from the Sierra is that, um, that we kind of collectively can mitigate our emissions such that this, these projections get proven wrong. Um, and maybe uh, future kids can also play in the snow. And besides that, Erica, can you just remind us how vital the snowpack is to California? Sure. Um, so Sierra snowpack in California provides up to 30% of water supply across the state. Um, and if folks aren't super familiar with water in California, it's really um, sort of a complex set of uh, natural and managed infrastructure kind of combined moving um, yeah, much of the snowpack melt over uh, hundreds or even thousands of miles. Um, and so it's the, yeah, both the kind of um, reservoir, uh, natural reservoir capacity of snow plays a role in, ter in terms of annually storing much of this water uh, for agriculture, for municipal, for in industrial uses, but it also provides water in a time of the year where precipitation is more scarce. Um, and so in, in thinking about a warmer world where um, snow will presumably melt earlier in the year, we're essentially facing a situation where the, um, the release of this snow melt, the release of our water and the arrival of our water across the state is going to come further in time from when our, our demands are the highest, which is mid to late summer. So it's, it's number one, the storage capacity of water, again, on the annual basis, but then also this timing component, because as you know, folks live, folks who live in California know much of our summers are very dry. And so it's it's kind of this combination of timing and, and storage. Mm, I want to get more into that and how the snowpack it acts essentially as a time release. After the break, we're talking with Alan Rhodes and Erica Cyrilla Woodburn, scientists with National with Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. And right after the break, we'll get into the implications of little or no snow in our future. Stay with us for more. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the possibility that the Sierra snowpack could vanish as soon as 25 years from now, vanish for prolonged periods 
of time. We're joined by Alan Rhodes, hydroclimate, science, hydroclimate research scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Erica Cirilla Woodburn, research scientist at Energy Geosciences Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and also with us is Benjamin Hatchett, Assistant Research Professor of Atmospheric Science, the Desert Research Institute, the nonprofit research arm of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Benjamin Hatchett, welcome to you as well. Thanks for having me. You, our listeners, are also with us, and I want to invite you to join the conversation. What are your reactions to the idea of a Sierra Nevada with little to no snow for five to 10 years at a time, beginning potentially as soon as the late 2040s, early 2050s. What would prolonged periods of little or no snow mean for you? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Getting into more of the impacts of little or no snow in the Sierra Nevada. Uh, Erica Sarah Woodburn, just before the break, you were talking about how the snowpack basically acts as, it sounds like a slower process of releasing winter precipitation into the reservoir. So basically it allows for a boost of water to fill our reservoirs at a time later, say in the spring or early summer, when demand goes up significantly? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so why would it be not, why would it be such a problem for this to melt sooner or for us to have more of our water fall as rain instead of snow uh, in terms of our state's water supply? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. Um, so I think part of it is um, sort of uh, existing management strategies and existing infrastructure that has been built in the Western US um, is all really around this assumption of that slow release that you just described. Um, and so thinking about just a phase shift in precipitation, so more rain falling opposed to snow, um, that means that much the, of the water that's running off um, into our streams, into the rivers, you know, that is, is diverted then and used for uh, human use is really coming at a different time than we've, we've typically um, expected it in the past. And so that leads to complications in terms of where is that water stored? Um, how is the water um, yeah, managed in terms of things like flood um, prevention, um, all these kind of different things. And so it really just kind of opens a can of worms in terms of, um, in terms of kind of uh, challenging some of these traditional practices and mm. of, of water management. And I also read Alan Rhodes, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that snowmelt it, it really more effectively infiltrates the surface than rainfall. And that even if you do have really good snowfall, that if the soil is parched or dry, that so much of it would be absorbed by, by rain and, and water content that it wouldn't even get to necessarily the places that you, that we would need it most. Like we couldn't necessarily take a snowpack measurement and it provide the water that we're used to. And droughts, of course, will become more more frequent with climate change. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, there's this concept called runoff efficiency. So it's how much of the um, precipitation deposited in a location ends up as runoff or is lost to, say, evapotranspiration or maybe um, percolates into the subsurface. And so particularly in the interior mountain west, uh, snowfall represents roughly one third of the total precipitation, but it contributes to runoff in a significant way in that it's up to 70% of the runoff. So it just shows that um, when you get more rain, less snow, particularly in the interior mountain ranges, that runoff efficiency is um, uh, lower than if you were to get it from snowmelt. Um, and so, yeah, in a warmer world, and I think there's another point you were bringing up, the evaporative demand of the atmosphere becomes higher as well. So more of that water is quote unquote lost to the atmosphere through water vapor. Um, it can't be directly used from our streams or through runoff and, and captured in our reservoirs. Uh, another thing is that our soils become drier and drier. Um, and so uh, it acts, you know, our soils act more like a sponge when precipitation occurs and kind of that water gets more locked up into the kind of beta zone and is not necessarily transported downstream into the reservoirs. Hmm. Um, and then kind of a, another unique thing is that we saw with the heat wave in June in the Pacific Northwest, that there was some snow in the Cascades, but it was abruptly lost due to that three to five day heat wave event right. um, due to ablation of the snow associated with this kind of thirstier atmosphere. Uh, I think you're also answering some of listener Michael's questions. Michael tweets, with climate change, do we get the same precipitation only it melts right away? If so, are more reservoirs the solution? How about covering reservoirs with something to minimize summer evaporation? What are your thoughts about that, Alan Rhodes? Yeah, um, I mean, I know reservoirs seem like the silver bullet solution, but I'll also remind uh, listeners and viewers that, you know, it takes decades to get a reservoir constructed, permitted, go through all the environmental regulations. Another thing is that, um, it, you know, the re best reservoir locations have often been tapped. And then the last thing is that uh, if you, you know, renovate current reservoirs to larger and larger um, sizes that produces a lot more risk to downstream communities if you know something might happen, um, and so I, I I think that we definitely think that you know maybe smaller scale reservoirs as conduits to transfer and convey water might be a nice part of the buckshot approach of a future of low to no snow. I think we would really like to highlight that there are um, alternate you know stakeholder scientists kind of. Um, uh, solutions that are popping up more and more in discussions, such as forecast informed reservoir operations. So it's kind of taking the current infrastructure that we have and managing it for the future and not assuming kind of stationarity associated with um, how we managed in the 1950s, for example. Another is through managed aquifer recharge, um, using our groundwater as kind of this way of um, getting natural storage that the snowpack once provided. Um, so I think yeah, I, I would say that reservoirs are definitely probably going to be part of the solution, but I would advocate that, you know, we kind of think that they're not the solution, um, so to speak. Well, Lloyd writes, well, no snowpack should kill the entire snow resort industry in California. Uh, Benjamin Hatchett, I want to go to you for that. Can you talk a little bit about the impacts of a low or snowless Sierra on areas that rely on it uh, for tourism, recreation, for their economies? Sure, it's absolutely a critical, if not potentially devastating, blow to 
many of our mountain economies and, and which are primarily these rural areas that are often underserved um, initially from uh, many perspectives and, and kind of have a, a difficult economic situation to be in and really rely on in particular winter related tourism um, to get through the year. And having a shorter ski season, having a shorter um, period of time with which the resorts can operate and people can go ski and support the restaurant industry and the hotel industry and all of the related service industries that many of these economies rely on um, really is gonna pose some substantial problems. Um, for those places. And those impacts will further cascade into the warm season as well um, with regards to uh, river and lake related recreation activities where folks are, you know, unable to go out and fish or raft or have nice clean lakes to paddleboard and kayak on. Um, so it's, it creates challenges, not just for the snow sports industry in terms of just a shorter season um, and less opportunities for good snow conditions that are more enjoyable to ski and ride upon, but also it will impact our summertime activities as well and having very, very low stream flows and not be able to raft without scratching your bottom on the, the rocks or uh, be able to um, go fishing and, and do these other activities. So the efforts to mitigate a shorter winter season with these summer activities could also be affected. How much of a factor in terms of interrupting also the summertime activities and ways to try to have a robust economy in those areas is affected by wildfires, Benjamin Hedget? It's a huge impact and it's something that early on and in, in some of these earlier 2010s, drought, it was like, ah, oh, well, we don't get to ski as much or the snow's not as good, but at least we have mountain biking and, and we can do that all summer and it'll just be more mountain biking. And, and then the fires started happening. And now you may not have snow, but you can't breathe. You can't see all these beautiful views that you ride your bike up the hill for hours to enjoy. And so the weather, if the area is on fire, of course, that's a problem, but even the larger scale regional transport from fires happening tens or hundreds or sometimes thousands of miles away can really decrease the opportunities to enjoy these other um, non-snow related activities. Um, and that also impacts um, things resorts have been shifting towards in terms of, well, we don't have as much of a ski season, so let's move more towards summertime weddings and parties. Well, it's not very fun to get married when you can't see all the beautiful mountains around or um, it smells like campfire and, and uh, the air quality is poor. So yeah. a big challenge. Well, Elizabeth writes, talk about what happens to all the trees. I've already seen more trees dying with no warning, and I assume it will get much worse. Erica Sarah Woodburn, could you talk about that? Uh, what in terms of little or no snow, the effect that it has on trees and also how it contributes to wildfires. We're just talking about Benjamin Hatchet has such catastrophic effects. Certainly. Yeah. The, um, the environment, our ecosystem is, is this, you know, really uh, inextricably linked system. So we can't really think about shifts in precip precipitation patterns separate from snowpack accumulation changes, separate from, ecology and then, you know, stream flow discharge, all those things are really connected. And um, part of this study that we put together was really pulling together experts 
from different disciplines um, to sort of cover the spectrum of this space because um, I think that's one of the kind of places in terms of the scientific literature that um, there's, you know, there's further work to do. Um, but what we do know certainly is that uh, droughts and snow droughts have serious implications in terms of forest mortality. Um, and that's in terms of just providing enough uh, soil moisture for the for a forest to maintain, um, you know, suitable levels for its um, own um, ecosystem health. But it also has implications on things like um, invasive species or beetle infestations, for example, have been a real big issue in the Western US in the last um, decade or so that we see more and more kind of implications of. Um, and so that in turn, of course, has um, uh, impacts on, again, as I said earlier, how much water is actually lost or maintained in a system. So you can really think about each of these a single tree or a single plant as uh, sticking a straw into the ground and it's pulling up this water for its own um, maintenance of its own health. And so as we, as we lose trees, um, as we lose, you know, these really dense forests, we're altering the water balance of the water of the Western US in ways which we really don't have a precedent to. Um, you know, we've, as, as we talked in the beginning, we've, we've seen sort of single year or, maybe two year um, sort of implications of some of these snow droughts um, and, and have an analog for kind of what, what happened after that. But what we don't know is, is what happens after five or 10 years of these, um, of these low snow years in sequence and how that impacts things like wildfires. Because of course, having drier conditions is um, one of the main drivers of some of these unprecedented really large scale, really intense fires that we've seen in the last few years. And that's why we're setting all these records in terms of uh, wildfire occurrence. Yeah. Let me go to caller Deborah in Berkeley. Hi, Deborah. Hi, thank you so much. Yeah, my name is Deborah Moore. I live in Berkeley and I have kind of a comment as an emotional comment as a Californian and a scientific comment as a water and climate policy expert. And on the emotional side, which you guys asked for feedback from your listeners, I'm an avid skier. I've taught my daughter to ski, and it's just really sad. I'm really sad thinking about um, losing winters and um, future generations not having those experiences uh, mm-hmm. and thinking about my garden and changing, you know, how I manage my own tiny little property in Berkeley in terms of managing water. Um, but on the kind of science and policy side, first, I just wanted to compliment the scientists on the show for your really holistic approach, which I appreciate. And you already commented about an answer to a dams question. I was on something called the World Commission on Dams. And I think you're spot on that these are not going to be, you know, the only solution. And we're going to have to think radically differently about our water policies, our water rights, managing groundwater and surface water better together, as well as things like crop choices. In California, we use an intense amount, a huge amount of water on very low value water intensive crops. And everything, you know, from uh, water rights and 
how we manage that. So I guess dams for me are not the answer and we're going to need much more holistic and collaborative approaches as well to things like uh, wildfire management and um, indigenous approaches to managing fire and reducing the urban wildland interface. So I guess to sum up, just, you know, we're going to need to think so differently about California and how we manage water with these changes. So thank you for the scientists on this call. Well, thanks to the scientists. Thanks to you uh, for that comment and, and for your expertise. Let me go to Valina in San Francisco. Hi, Valina. Hello. Um, thank you for taking my call and for this very important topic of discussion. Uh, we are feeling the impact of the low snow levels in the Sierras. Um, we live in San Francisco. Our children participate in uh, ski teams at, uh, in Lake Tahoe. My son is an alpine racer. My daughter is on an all-mountain uh, team, and they can't start yet because there's no snow. And we've we also own a home up there, and we've had a difficult time finding insurance companies that will insure us because of the wildfires and all the economic impact uh, of uh, of the low water levels. We tried to go rafting during the summer, and it was very uncomfortable. While these are recreational things, it also impacts the economics of of the regions and for the folks who live there year-round. Additionally, if there's an a question of access. If there is no access to uh, to snow, then California, Northern California, will not have the good crop of athletes, aspiring athletes who go who have Olympic and international dreams of participating in winter sports. So it, it impacts it on multiple levels. Uh, you know, our children are young and they're seeing the impact of global warming and while they learn about it in school and it's part of the discourse here in the Bay Area particularly, having them experience it and translate it into their uh, daily lives and taking steps in their own lives to try and make a change, mitigate Mm -hmm. some of it, whether it be using bar soap instead of um, liquid soap or, you know, re-wearing the same pair of jeans uh, so that you're not impacting the environment. All of these things have multiple impacts. Yes, you are underscoring Erica Serla Woodburn's point that we are not in a hypothetical. We are experiencing it now. We'll have more with Erica Allen Rhodes and Benjamin Hatchett after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the possibility that the Sierra snowpack could vanish as soon as 25 years from now for extended periods of time. With Alan Rhodes, hydroclimate research scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Erica Cyrilla Woodburn, research scientist in the Energy Geosciences Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, co-authors of a study that came out with that 25-year prediction if things don't change. Also, Benjamin Hatchett is with us, Assistant Research Professor of Atmospheric Science at the Desert Research Institute. And you, our listeners, are calling with your questions about the study. What prolonged periods of little or no snow in the Sierra Nevada could mean for you? And I also want to ask if you are optimistic that we humans can make the changes needed to stop the snowpack from vanishing for years at a time. Because what these study authors are also underscoring is that this doesn't have to be our reality. It isn't necessarily inevitable. Join us with your thoughts at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. We started talking a little bit about solutions, about the need for water storage, but the limitations of our of reservoirs as the only way to try to address that and other ways to try to get our arms around trying to replace the kind of water that the snowpack provides. Let me go to Neil in San Francisco. Hi, Neil. Thanks for joining us. What's your question? My question is this. Whatever happened to uh, the concept of desalinization, has that been ruled out as an option or, or what? Is that even possible? Mm. De Alan Rhodes, what do you think? Desalinization as one of the viable uh, measures. Yeah, I think uh, I'll just advocate that I think we're advocating for a buckshot approach, right? So desalination would definitely be part of the portfolio to consider. It's probably best for certain coastal communities, particularly affluent communities. I think there's a price point issue with desalination that still needs to be thought about. And I also think that there's some um, you know, issues associated with what do you do with the brine, um, after doing the desalination, but surely it's uh, probably makes sense for certain affluent coastal communities. Can you talk a little bit more about what you had alluded to earlier, Alan Rhodes, in terms of groundwater recharge? Yeah, this is a growing area of um, scientific uh, kind of management partnership um, that's really exciting to see. Um, and the idea is that um, maybe we allow for more floodplains to occur uh, such that, that these floodplains can act as um, places where the more rain, less snow runoff can kind of go to and then percolate down into the groundwater. And then there's a lot of ecosystem benefits associated with that and maybe also recreational value, X, Y, and Z. Um, and then there's also another um, aspect to manage aquifer recharge associated with flooding um, certain orchard fields or certain you know, agricultural fields uh, during winter months when we have, you know, plenty of atmospheric river water to convey and maybe store. Um, but I think it's also a ripe area for research. Um, I think there's definitely some questions about how do we actually convey that water? Um, how do we make sure that, you know, localized flooding doesn't occur with shifts also in atmospheric river characteristics in a warmer world? Um, but there are very um, nice um, you know, case studies that have been showing promise in recent years. So the Scripps Institution of Oceanography through the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes has um, come up with some nice seminal studies on Lake Mendocino. And they were able to show that using forecast informed reservoir operation, for example, um, led to 33% more um, storage behind the, the reservoir. Um, and so that, that water can then be potentially conveyed and you know,
know, leverage with managed rock for recharge uh, to store it more long term. Uh, let me go to Susan in Novato. Hi, Susan. Hi there. Um, thanks for having me. I, I didn't want to ghost and just hang up, but you pretty much just answered my question right there. It, okay. was, um, it was it was about crop flooding and uh, groundwater recharge, just trying to find out what, what crop changes might be on the way and which crops are and, and orchards, et cetera, are showing most promise for the future. Um, Susan, thanks. I don't know, Benjamin Hatches, anything you would want to add to what Susan brought up as well with regard to crop choices? Sure. So in terms of what one of the other callers also brought up of, of perhaps crop switching to more water efficient crops or maybe changing the incentive structure for growing more water uh, efficient crops, um, we can also start thinking about crop types that do well when they are flooded, like many of California's rice fields uh, get seasonally flooded, which is beneficial, not just for aquifer recharge, but also for creating um, nice uh, habitat for the Pacific flyway and migratory birds and other um, creating these temporary wetlands. Wetlands are one of the largest areas of critical habitat that we've lost throughout California, largely in the Central Valley, but in the mountain regions as well. And so thinking about crops that do well when they are temporarily or seasonally flooded um, is certainly going to be a good way to go to try to enhance the, the area that we have to uh, perform these aquifer recharge activities, as well as creating additional habitat to help restore ecosystems and also limit uh, flood impacts to communities. If we can keep that water in places where it serves multiple beneficial uh, purposes, that's much better than in someone's living room. Erica Sterla Woodburn, your study also mentions improved forecasting and using it to manage water releases from reservoirs better. Can you can you talk about what forecast informed reservoir operations are and why we haven't been using them already? Sure, sure, yeah. So the, the idea is really um, to leverage some of the advancements in forecasting technologies. Um, so, so yeah, thinking about um, being a little less conservative in terms of how some of these large scale reservoirs are managed, which traditionally is based on um, something called a rule curve. And essentially it's a sort of set schedule throughout the year at which um, an amount of uh, storage capacity in the reservoirs are maintained in order to prevent uh, or, or in order to allow for um, inflows um, to you know, uh, avoid essentially um, flooding and overspill. And so um, thinking about, well, we know that there aren't any big storms on the horizon. Can we maintain some of this water in the reservoir um, opposed to, to letting it, um, uh, uh, opposed to releasing it from that outflow, can we maintain some of this? Because we know essentially with these improvements in, in forecasting that there isn't a, a storm on the horizon. Um, and so I think Alan pointed to some of the work, um, the recent work um, sort of implementing these strategies uh, at scale in, in Mendocino, Mendocino, for example, um, and that can have, uh, as they demonstrated, up to you know some pretty substantial 30% um, increases in overall uh, water capacity. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it's it's a 
it's a challenge in the way that some of these uh, management strategies are really um, um, not have been really well established. And so uh, changing some of this, I think, takes time and they needs to be demonstrated, right? That that some of these new approaches are feasible and effective. Well, this listener, uh, Wayne writes, loss of the Sierra Nevada snowpack is one of hundreds, thousands of climate crises and emergency that the world is ignoring. If we aren't willing to give up some of our cushy lives, make sacrifices for the common good, there is little hope that our civilization will survive the climate crisis intact. We need to treat the climate crisis emergency like World War II, but with all the combatants on the same side. Anything less than this is a sad joke. We are leaving our grandchildren an uninhabitable planet. This is a long-term problem that requires long-term thinking. This listener writes on Instagram, personal responsibility is extremely minor to affect change. Corporate policy and systematic changes must take place. One of the things that I'm struck by, Alan Rhodes, is that your and Erica's research here and, and Benjamin's con contributions as well are based on the uh, the kinds of emissions that we're seeing, carbon emissions that we're seeing now. So essentially isn't one of the ways that we would mitigate this snowpack loss is essentially <laughs> trying to get to the point where we have net zero emissions of carbon dioxide. And how realistic is that? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I'll just remind that there definitely is a sense of urgency and, and whatnot to snow loss, right? Because the freezing point of water is really non-negotiable. And as we continue to emit carbon, into the atmosphere, it puts more of a blanket um, over the globe and that blanket leads to higher and higher temperatures. And so we can't maintain freezing, um, the freezing point of water for uh, as long a period of time as we could historically. But um, yeah, we've, we've increased temperatures by about a one degree Celsius on average throughout the Western US. Um, and so these futures that we see in these studies are often these like, you know, two, three degree, four degree futures. And so, we haven't emitted that carbon quite yet. And so there's definitely ample time to make these low to no snow projections more and more wrong. And that's really our hope, right? We, did, we don't think that these are set in stone, but that we wanted to highlight that there is a sense of urgency and that if we do nothing, that this could, this could be the future that we might um, end up in. Um, but I do wanna, you know, not toot the doom and gloom horn too much, uh, which often happens in climate change and climate science. Um, I think that there are a lot of blueprints being um, developed by very smart researchers, some of which are at Berkeley Lab, who are laying out in the next 10 years what a blueprint of transitioning from maybe a fossil fuel dependent economy to less fossil fuel dependent economy might look like and doing it in a very nuts and bolts kind of way. Um, I would also say that, you know, someone like Saul Griffith has been in the news and headlines lately, too, with his own blueprint on what it looks like to electrify the nation. Um, so I would just say that there's a lot of um, nuts and bolts type of plans out there. We just have to have, you know, the will to want to start to move to towards implementing them. Um, and so, yeah, the, the more carbon that we keep in the ground or don't put up in the atmosphere, uh, the better likelihood there is that we can maintain this freezing point of water. Yes, and that, that study that you allude to did make it sound like we can do it. Of course, it would require some transformational change, but that that 
there is a plan, as you say, out there, and we can do it if we do have that will. We're talking about the loss of Sierra snowpack and what it means for California since it's a vital resource for so many things. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Mary Jane in Tulare County. Hi, Mary Jane. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Mary Jane Galvisto, and uh, I have a farm here uh, in northern Tulare County, and we're... Uh, well, actually, my farm is home for the Filipino Farmers Cooperative. We grow exclusively Filipino vegetables. It's a green crop. And, uh, and uh, last year, uh, actually this year, uh, we uh, were notified by our local irrigation district that there would be no water, no irrigation water released for us. Uh, that, was, that was pretty, uh, you can't imagine how difficult it is to have a green crop with no irrigation water and depend on a single shallow well. So the difference between farmers like us, and we're real farmers, we're, we're not, <laughs> we're not agri- agribusiness, that's not, they're not farmers, they're corporations, is that they can, they are sucking out water so quickly out of the ground that whether there's water from the Sierras or not doesn't really matter to them. In fact, the Agricultural Tulare County Agricultural Commissioner said, well, Ms. Galvisto, you don't have to worry much. He's going to be going out and moving to Hawaii soon anyway. Mm. Oh. <laughs> uh, Mary Jane, I think your connection is, is getting just a touch bad, but I appreciate what you are bringing up because Erica Sarah Woodburn, it reminds me of what you were saying in terms of you're hoping that this holistic approach will create more collaboration among stakeholders. What is your hope or are you seeing that uh, already? Uh, because for Mary Jane, for example, you know, she's experiencing competing interests here. Yeah, certainly. And it's really, um, thank you for the for your comment, Mary Jane, and, and for um, sharing your experience, because it's it's um, really disheartening to hear how some of these changes are already impacting people's livelihoods. And um, you know, I think um, it's it's fun to think about how, or it's not fun, but it's it's maybe easy to think about how some of these changes will impact things like recreation. Um, and and sort of um, smaller scale impacts like uh, uh, you know our our recreational and tourism practices, but um, yeah, I, I think she highlights some of the sort of uh, more serious implications and and what that means for uh, agriculture and food production, not just in the U.S. but across the world, because of course the Central Valley is this really um, important source of food for the whole world. Um, and so what, what does that mean in terms of where people live, where our food is produced, um, I think is sort of an open-ended question, but I think you, you were asking about in terms of, uh, stakeholder and engagement and sort of working across traditionally siloed disciplines. And I think that's one thing we really tried to highlight in the study. We, we, we really, um, wanted to better synthesize some of these snowpack losses, but then, uh, put it into a perspective, into the context of, um, of, of what we can do as individuals, what we can do as um, a community as a whole. And so I think sort of addressing one of the other callers comments too about um, 
some of these changes really need to be need to happen on a large scale. I totally agree with that, but I think that individually we we each have our own sort of um, uh, perspective that sort of trickles down into how we talk with our family, with our friends, what kind of things we um, buy in the grocery store, what kind of diets we we have, what kind of cars we drive. And so I think that sort of percolates into kind of mm. um, our overall uh, societal view on greenhouse gas emissions and water use. And so I, I think just not underscoring that and and hoping that this this conversation around snowpack loss can really be elevated to the same level as some of these other uh, really well-publicized climate disaster things like wildfires or sea level rise. Well, listener Kate would like to see the state and federal government do more to incentivize good behaviors. Kate writes, I have a 600 square foot veggie and fruit garden and converted the rest of my property to drought tolerant native plants. I just added 4,000 gallons of rainwater collection tanks, which will almost completely water my vegetable garden during the six months of no rain. I've paid for this myself. Whereas when we went solar and made energy efficient changes throughout our home, we got huge rebates. When will the local state and federal government start giving rebates to homeowners who make this vital change? on their own dime. Bradley writes, it is too late. Our society does not move quickly enough to make necessary changes. All of the water management issues being discussed have been discussed for decades. Water issues are an energy issue. The only path we will have is to have clean, cheap energy to recycle the water we use through essentially a closed cycle. Bradley Hatchett wanted to give you the last response to maybe Bradley who, who feels a little doom and gloom if I'm summarizing how Bradley feels correctly, and what what would you say to to Bradley? Well, we're we are committed to some change, and he also has a point that we do move slowly. But as I think Alan and Erica have reiterated, part of the point of our study was to really highlight that if we do nothing, this will be an imminent future. However, we have we still have an opportunity to make a difference, and there's plentiful research that suggests that we we still, while we may be on track for uh, a, a less favorable outcome, we still have an opportunity to divert from that um, climate pathway. And so it's really important to recognize that we still have time and we can really accelerate our activities towards moving towards a more sustainable future. Mm. Benjamin Hatchett of the Desert Research Institute, Erica Cirilla Woodburn, and Alan Rhodes of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, co-authors of a study looking at a low to no snow future and its impacts and what can be done about it. Thanks. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.